Well, we are returning to Ephesians, a series that we kicked off earlier this year, and we left off at a natural breaking point, Ephesians chapter 3. And Ephesians is a book that very clearly, in the first three chapters, presents uh, Paul's vision of God's work of salvation in us. And we call this, he, he describes the grace that God has given us in Christ. And then in the second four chapters, he pivots Uh, The Pauline pivot to the life that we then live as transformed new creation in this world. If there's nothing else you remember about the book of Ephesians ever in your lives, remember that its essential message is one of God's work in Christ, the indicative reality of who we are, and then a turning to the Christian life and the imperative that flows out from that This is the key to the whole series of this sermons which we are preaching through this book. So we will pick up in chapter 4. And because I'm going to do a little bit of a recap of the first part, uh, I'm only going to preach on the first six verses. But this section flows to verse 16. So I will read this whole unit in Ephesians chapter 4. This is God's holy word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean, but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And join me in our prayer of illumination uh, found in our worship bulletins. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Now, in one sense, we we picked a very apt and fitting place to to pause because there's a big transition in Paul's epistle. But in another sense, we picked kind of a a bad place to pause because as we see from the beginning of chapter 4, I therefore, 
This important therefore is so crucial to the meaning of our text. And it's now been months. It's been months since we worked through uh, this first half of the epistle. So if you would like uh, to open your Bible, maybe just to Ephesians 1. Um, I've printed the first uh, three uh, chapters here on a single page so I can diagram it out. I'm going to give you, you know, the John Madden quick and dirty first three chapters of what we have heard of, uh, from Paul in this epistle. Now, the setting, Paul's in prison. And as far as he knows, he could die any minute. So I understand this letter as a last will and testament. It's a sermon. You could read it to the churches. It may have circled. We know it's circled. It's still circling, right? You could read the thing as a sermon in about 20 minutes. And so that's why this flow from the indicative truth of who we are in Christ to how we should then live is so important. Um, But he is really packing so much material in here because he's trying to give a basic blueprint of the gospel. A blueprint of salvation. And he opens up uh, by saying in chapter 1 that we have been blessed to bless. That God has called us and elected us in Christ that we might be. He repeats it three times to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory. This is an Old Testament blessing. God blessed us that we might reflect his glory back upon him. And this blessing comes to us through nothing less than the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. The power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that is at work in the church today. Paul prays that the Spirit might give us the strength to understand our rich inheritance. Not to be led astray by the riches of Ephesus, of the temple of Artemis down the street. By the worldliness of this most abundant leading city of Turkey. But to set our hearts and our minds and our faith on things above, on Christ And in chapter 2, we get what, in effect, are two three-point sermons. And the three-point sermons follow the outline of the Epistle to the Romans, which also happens to be, not coincidentally, the outline of the Heidelberg Catechism. Guilt, grace, gratitude. And Paul does it first individually. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but you were brought to life. He talks about the individual experience. The individual who was walking after the way of the world... And now has been recreated so that he can walk in the good works that God has prepared. But then he goes back and he tells the same story corporately in the second half of chapter 2. Individually in the first half, but in the second half corporately. Because brothers and sisters, Ephesians is the book, the epistle of the church. The church is really central to this epistle. And that's what we need to hear. And so in the second half, he he talks about uh, those Gentiles who, again, corporately, as a mass of people, were foreigners, strangers, alien to the grace of God in Christ, separated from Christ, strangers to the covenants of promise. But then they've been brought near. He says, in the place of two, he has made one man, his united humanity, no longer divided. There can be no racism in the church. There can be no classism in the church. There can be no isms in the church. It's Christ. And we are united. And he uses this image of a temple. Again, the wonder of the world, the temple of Artemis, of Ephesus, is down the road. And Paul says, you are the temple. You are the temple. Being built together, a dwelling place for God. And then, he, in chapter 3, turns to, uh, for this reason... And then he gets off on a little bit of a a tangent, talking about why he's in prison. 
Uh, you know, people might be out there spreading some, some rumors that, you know, I've been thrown in prison. I'm not a trustworthy guy, but I'm in prison for you, Gentiles. I'm in prison for the gospel. Why was Paul arrested? Because a rumor was spread false that he had brought a Gentile into the precincts of the temple in Jerusalem. Now that wasn't true, but it was true that Paul was saying there are no barriers in the church between Jew and Gentile. So Paul was in prison. He's in chains for the gospel, which brings peace and unity to the church. And he closes this first half with this prayer in verse um, 14 of chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened, that you might understand God's love. We need the Spirit. I referenced to dream the impossible dream in this sermon a few months ago. It's an unknowable love. You can't fathom the depth of God's love for you. But He can make you understand it through His Spirit. That we might have the strength to comprehend and know the love of Christ. And you have to close with this beautiful doxological prayer. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, in in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And that I, therefore, urge you, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So this beautiful backdrop. And then Paul turns to how... We then shall live. And brothers and sisters, understanding the relationship between what we believe, our faith, and works is a perennial concern in the Christian faith. It's not a, it's not a Reformation thing. Uh, of course, it came up in the Protestant Reformation, but that was really a replay of a debate between Pelagius and Augustine in the 4th century. And there was an issue kind of before Pelagius and Augustine between uh, Peter and Paul. You might remember The Apostle Paul in Galatians said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul is adamant. We're saved by faith from beginning to end. By the works of the law will no flesh be justified. And this debate rages today. It rages within our hearts. What do I have to do? Am I good enough? Have I pleased God this day? If we're saved by grace, what's to keep me from just becoming a lazy bum? Why do good works? As Paul's opponents claimed, why not just sin more? Get more grace, more forgiveness. If we preach such a potent, all-sufficient grace, many charge in reformed circles today, won't the result be a lazy church? So we have charges today circulating of of antinomianism against preachers of the gospel. The same charge that was leveled against the Apostle Paul. Ephesians is, in my view, the best possible answer to this question. Paul writes this letter, this sermon, as one of his last letters. Something of a capstone to his ministry. And while the teaching is similar to, to Galatians and Romans... 
In those letters, he's being critical of the opponents of grace, critical of the gospel. But here, he's being affirmative. He's given the affirmative picture of the church, the image of the church. And I think it is a most beautiful epistle for that reason. The relationship here is this. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. Paul says it so clearly. He repeats it. Not a result of works that no one can boast. You were dead, he says, in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. Again, as he puts it in the Galatians, having begun by the Spirit. In other words, having been brought to life. You think you're going to add to that? What are you going to do now? You were created, he says, for the purpose of good works that you could walk in them. So Paul has described this great work of deliverance, this beautiful holy temple into which we're being built for three chapters. And he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Christ's love for us, the incomprehensible love which he prays we might comprehend, must be our love for one another. That's the worthy love. And if you understand this big picture, how these two things relate to one another, you understand the Christian life The riddle of faith and works. Who we are in Christ is true by God's declarative spirit. And how we must then live is a work of the spirit's transformation in us. And this relationship is never more clear in these verses. Every single command you receive as a Christian can only be received as you are in Christ. It's only when you're in Christ by faith. That you are alive can hear and understand these commands and act on them. And so Paul boldly launches the second half of his sermon with a first person imperative verb. The first word, I urge you. Parakaleo. It's related to the word to be called. He's calling them to something. And he's calling them who have been called. We'll come back to that in a moment. Based on who you are, this new reality, I urge you. And Paul is speaking here, as we'll see, with authority. But even the command itself stems from Paul's identity. Paul's own calling. The first thing he does is describe himself. And there's an an emphatic first person uh, pronoun. I, ego, am a prisoner in the Lord. He is in bondage to the love of Christ. He's bound. Once again, as was this case many times in the first three chapters, these six verses is is one sentence in Paul's run-on sort of fashion, Greek fashion. It's not bad Greek form. But the sentence boils down, if you had to diagram it, I urge you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I urge you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in love. This is the command stripped to its barest essentials. And it's really the basis of all the commands of the whole rest of the last four. It's kind of the heading of the last three chapters. Be zealous for unity. Be zealous for unity. Be humble. Be gentle in pursuit of unity. But notice two things that jump out with regard to the indicative imperative pattern of Paul's epistles. The first half often being the indicative, who we are in Christ. The second half being the commands that flow from it. Notice what Paul does. First, the calling, the basis of the command is our calling. 
It is our calling. He refers explicitly in the midst of this command. It describes the command. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. But he uses an emphatic expression. The calling to which we have been called. And he uses that emphatic expression, which uses the word calling twice. He uses that expression twice. So four times in this single sentence. The calling to which you've been called. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. While the word church isn't used in this Greek sentence, it is nevertheless front and center. Because he's pointing them back to what he's taught about the church. But more than that, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. And the root there is the called out ones. So when Paul addresses us as those who have been called to what we've been called twice, he's talking to the ekklesia. And he's calling them to a churchly life. Paul's authority is founded on the reality that we are called as members of Christ. His authority is the authority of Christ expressed in the church. And this is a command. This is a mandate. We can't dodge it or duck it. It's a new reality. And so this law is not in conflict with the gospel. It's based on the gospel. And he goes back, even in the course of giving us a command, notice what he does. And he does this all the time. This distinction between law and gospel is fluid. He goes back to the indicative voice. We are called to the unity. So he starts talking about what? The unity that is in the Godhead. The unity to which we have been joined by being made members of one body of Christ. The church having one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope. I mean, the word one in three different forms is in this single sentence so many times. I think 12 or 14 times. You see, even as Paul turns to the worthy manner of our walking, the application of God's law summarized by love to the Christian life, he can't stop talking about the gospel because that's the only way we can do this. He doesn't leave the gospel behind. He never leaves the gospel behind. It's always the power and energy of the Christian life. It is who you are, beloved children of God, beloved children of God, that enables you to love. That's why John said, you don't even understand love until you have... Seen it manifest in Christ. And then you can love because God empowers you to do so. Nothing else, not your fear of failing or punishment, not a desire to excel in Christianity, nothing else motivates the Christian life other than this positive desire to live the life of love that Christ has modeled for you. Guilt, grace, and gratitude of our catechism is is the daily pattern of the Christian life. It's not something you learn when you're a kid and move on. And it's grounded, and we'll come back to this a little bit later in the sermon, but it's the second point in my outline. I submitted my outline a little bit in the week, and the sermon continued to grow. But it's, it's grounded in humility. And it doesn't really come across in the English translation here. But when he says, I urge you to walk in a manner, the Greek word is axios, axiomatic, worthy, expressive, indicative of your calling. Humility is the heading. Be humble like Christ. Humility must drive all things here. Gospel humility of Jesus Christ as he was humble to the point of death and death on a cross is the only thing that makes our lives worthy, worthily lived among one another. And that's really uh, the most important part of this sermon. I want us to pause here and think of, of how 
The gospel is the only motivation for our true obedience. But the goal, that's the motivation, and the means is humility that Christ showed. But the goal here is unity. And that comes across in this sentence so well. Unity in the church, which we just saw a child be baptized into, right? Unity in this one body that has one head, one Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is unity. And there's a beautiful creedal structure in this. True relational unity exists only in the Godhead, only among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the only place there's perfect unity, so we must keep our eyes on that. Distinct persons, yet one God. And Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Lord, I pray, what? That they may all be one. He's still praying that prayer. That we may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, and that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Jesus is inviting us to share in the love of the Trinity. And he's given us a spirit so that we may do so. You can't imagine His power. You can't imagine what to ask for, what to think about, what he wants to grant you. And he wants to give it for you. He's praying for it right now. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Paul just explodes with ones. One God, the Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Notice here that we have the Spirit and the Lord, which is Paul's title for Christ, and one God and Father. It's the Trinity. Here the threeness are affirmed in their oneness, in their unity. And affirmed in triune fashion. This is a perfect example of how the word of God speaks of three persons united in one God. These three persons are taught most clearly by Christ himself. When he commanded us to do what we did today. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And make no mistake that Paul refers here to our baptism. That's why he goes back to the Trinity. You have been baptized. You're baptized into oneness. Not like oneness Pentecostals, that's a different thing. Baptism, baptizing to triune oneness. The one body of Christ, the church, which the Spirit effectually calls us into, expresses our one hope. The Spirit, therefore, is the pledge of our future inheritance, and all our hopes are yes and amen in Him. And because we have one hope, we have one Lord. Brothers and sisters, if Christ rules in His church, we cannot be divided. And if we are divided, Christ is not ruling in his church. We may and we need to pray for strength to comprehend, to be able to understand his love and how it is powerful. We don't understand it. We don't believe it. We don't trust it enough. We should pray your kingdom come, your will be done. And we know that that will is unity and love. Calvin has a wonderful quote here. How should we dread every kind of animosity if we duly reflected that all who separated us from brethren estrange us from the kingdom of God? Calvin knew a little bit of conflict in his life. (laughs) He knew a little bit of estrangement from different branches and wings of the Christian church. But he knew that unity must be pursued. He spent his life pursuing unity with the Lutheran wing of the Reformation. Not very successfully, but he did pursue it. And in this, Lord, we have common faith and a common baptism. 
And this bond is deep in creation. Our Heavenly Father created all things to proclaim His glory. So this calling is ours in keeping with our nature. The purpose of we have as creatures. And all of this is the theological basis of our calling. We are to love. But brothers and sisters, uh, it is a high and holy calling. But in gratitude, we believe that we are called to accomplish great things in the name of Christ. Things that the world cannot conceive of. And Paul uses the word uh, chains, bondage here, to refer both to us and to himself. Paul is bound in chains for the gospel of his Lord. So we are bound by the Spirit, he says, to live at peace and in love with the saints. We aren't just to go out and do good things. Isn't it funny how Americans pull ourselves up by the bootstraps? Uh, Modern uh, Western people who are inherently individualistic and not corporate in our thinking, right? Isn't it... Interesting is you ask a Christian, maybe maybe a child, maybe um, any believer in the church, say, well, what are good works? And they'll just go list a bunch of things I'm called to go out and do, right? <laughs> well, maybe, you know, feed some people who are hungry, maybe give a glass of water or go out and do service projects or, or do this or do that. We're called to peace and love with one another in the church. We're not just called to go out and do good things. We're called to love. And to be united. The Old Testament law regulated every aspect of life. 613 commandments. Now, we had a Jewish friend visit us once. Uh, my wife might laugh here. It was, it was someone that she worked with. And, uh, and we were you know, trying to be respectful. I don't know if we were in a restaurant or something. And, and there was bacon on the menu. You know, and she said, I'm just going to 612 this one. You know, there's 613 laws. Today there are 612 because I'm going to have the BLT. Right? When, you, when you're given 613 laws for how to live the Christian life, you've got to pick which ones to follow. But we're not given 613 laws. We're given one. Love. And this is one of the characteristics of New Testament ethics, New Testament law. Love. 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 It's the summation of the law. Love God. Love neighbor. Love. The New Testament reduces to one And does this one commandment have less controlling authority over our lives or more? You know the answer, right? Love is harder. Love isn't the gospel. (laughs) Because we can't do it. It's the law. It's harder than the 613. It touches every breath we take. Every thought that transits through our brains. By simplifying the law, Christ makes it more comprehensive. And the language of walking, which is a theme of this book, it's a theme of Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the righteous man, the one who trusts in the Lord, who walks not, and then those who walk in. But here we see Paul's theme. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but you were created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. No longer walk as the Gentiles do in futility. Walk as children of the light. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. Walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Paul describes the loving walk and Christ is the key. He is our model. This walk is with all humility and gentleness. Patience, bearing with one another in love. Listen to those virtues again. Humble, gentle, patient, long-suffering. Those are all relational virtues. I've preached through Ephesians before. And when I preached through this text the last time, 
My title was, Unity is Hard. Paul says, be united. And then he tells us how hard it's going to be. You're going to have to suffer a long time with other sinners. All of these relational virtues assume that there is disagreement, discord, difficulty, suffering. Unity is hard. We are called to love one another. We are called to love sinners. You are called to love people that don't deserve it. You are called to love people unlike yourself. People like yourself, but people that are radically different. Jews, Gentiles. Bond, free. Master, slave. This is the way Paul talks about the Christian life. Later, parents, children. These people don't get along. Sometimes, parents fight with their teenage children. Unity is hard. By nature, we are disunited. Adam and Eve got in a fight. Cain and Abel got in a fight, and so it goes. I'm called to love one another, to look to each other, to value them, their well-being, higher than your own. All married people know what's coming in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands. But before that, he says that we should all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do you understand what... I almost skipped a page. People are thinking like, please skip a page. We love by submitting our own interests to the interests of others. Think back over the last week. I bet you can recall a moment where you could have advanced the interest of a neighbor and you faced a choice. Do I do it in my own self-interest? I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Or do I advance the interest of my neighbor? Unity is hard because of our sin. And our selfishness. And because of your neighbor's sin and selfishness. Which we all know a lot better than our own sin, by the way. As every spouse can tell you. But Paul's model here is Christ. And that is where we must look as we seek to live in a manner worthy of our calling. As Jesus said in Matthew 11. Such precious words. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Paul looks to Christ explicitly for his model in 2 Corinthians 10. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul is doing what Jesus said to do. Learn from me. I am meek and lowly. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. And this is the model we see in Philippians. What a beautiful passage, Philippians 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being, here's that unity theme, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God, people. <laughs> and he was humble. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born into the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So too, Jesus' closing act of service to his disciples was to wash their feet. If I do not wash your feet, he said to Peter, you have no share in me. 
Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher, Lord. You're right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you all should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you want to be like Jesus, start washing feet. Now, I said I'd come back to this second point of humility. It wasn't a Greek virtue. Fortitude, courage, prudence, justice. It wasn't a Roman virtue. It was the curse of slaves, servants. These aren't honored positions in the church that Paul's writing to these Gentiles. They have to take their thoughts captive to Christ to learn humility. And so do we. I don't know if you've seen social media lately. <laughs> I hope not, maybe. <laughs> humility is not a virtue. We live in a, a system making us unhumble. Proud boasters. Paul sees that there can be no unity in the church, no love without humility. The world knows only one form of unity, tyranny. I'll force it on you. Not Jesus. He'll humble it on you. We'll submit ourselves to him, the only king. Unity is hard. We're called to suffer the sins of one another under the lordship of Christ until he returns. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we are weak, but you are strong. And we are weak in our imagination. We cannot see your love and its power. We cannot see what unity looks like. We fight over the silliest of things. But you are a king and a prince of peace. Grace and peace you proclaim. And you breathe your spirit of peace on us. Give us your peace as we eat of this one loaf. As we express our unity in Christ at this table. And go forth from here that the world might know your love as it is displayed imperfectly in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.